Well, there is a common opinion amongst evangelicals today that for too many years, the cost of being a Christian in North America has been, on the whole, too low. It's been too easy for too long. And in some ways, this has had a negative effect on the spiritual health of the church. Without getting into the causes behind that or, or the nuances, that's, that's an opinion that I hold myself. And along with that comes the expectation that this will not last. There are days coming, and in some ways, the days are arriving now, where the cost of following Christ in Canada will rise. And we feel it in all sorts of ways. We feel it in the air out there. We feel it in the schools with the attempts to to move the responsibility of educating children in morals away from parents and to take that out of the parents' and families' hands. We feel it in this unavoidable revolution of so-called tolerance, which is pressing in on freedom of speech and freedom of religion. But I bring this up today because I believe that a line was sort of drawn in the sand and in some ways crossed just this last week. Uh, you may or may not heard of something called the Nashville Statement. This is a statement released by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which affirms what Scripture says and what the Church has always believed about sin and salvation and how those things relate particularly to gender and to marriage. It's been signed by a wide array of conservative Christian leaders, and it's resulted in some controversy. Surprise, surprise. I think that the Nashville Statement will end up marking a turning point in the life of the North American church. The reason I think this is not because of what it says. Um, What it says isn't really all that surprising. It's what the church has been saying all along. It's what scripture says. There's, There's nothing new in this statement in terms of content. It's not a turning point because of the people who have signed it and who will affirm it. There's no real surprises there either. It's not a turning point because the secular world is shocked and offended and opposed to what the statement says. We've known for a long time that the world is going in a direction that is completely counter to the truth in God's word. The reason I think it's a turning point is this. All of the the members of churches and leaders in Christianity who will not sign and who will not affirm, uh, who will refuse to affirm what scripture says, And not only that, but are actively and zealously working to oppose this statement. I think this is a turning point because this is where the road gets too hard for many who were once inside the church. And a divide like this will signal to the rest of the world that the part of the church that will actually draw a line and suffer and refuse to back down when it comes to the trustworthiness of the Bible, that part of the church It does not have the support of large numbers of progressive and liberal Christians who have found it too hard or who have preferred just not to stand on what God's word says. Our society all over the place is at a breaking point right now. Democratic countries all over the world are sharply divided right down the middle and fearful. Everyone's looking for places to lay the blame and Christians are going to stand out as the ones who refuse to get in line with the, the moral revolution that may be nonsense, but it's the particular kind of nonsense that countries like ours have chosen to grab and hold on to as the anchor in the storm that our world faces right now. And I think 
that this is the point where we can honestly stop talking about expecting to see the cost of being a Christian go up someday in the future. And we need to start realizing that that day is probably upon us. So what will you do when the cost goes up? This morning I want us to turn to Jeremiah chapter 12 for some hard words of encouragement. They aren't easy words, but in the end, they're hard words which encourage us because they are tied to who God is and how he works. Before we go any further, let's just bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to gather here freely in your name and to open up your word and hear from it this morning. Lord, I pray that you will, you will give us hearts that are sensitive to hear and respond to what your word says. I pray that you will prevent me from saying anything that is not in keeping with what your word says. And we pray that you will accomplish in us this morning what you will, as your word has its, has its place among us in worship as we listen and as we respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read through Jeremiah chapter 12. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away, because they said, he will not see our latter end. And God's response comes, If you have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey around her, against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. My shepherds have destroyed, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyards. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land. 
and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Well, Jeremiah had a long, hard life and ministry. Every prophet that God sent to hold his people to account had a tough job. But Jeremiah's ministry was really hard. He was called by God during the last days of the southern kingdom of Judah, during the days leading up to and including that time when the armies of the Babylonian Empire would lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. During the time of the divided kingdom, God sent many prophets to both kingdoms. Most of these prophets had a variation on the same warning. You are breaking covenant with the Lord. If you do not listen to the warnings, then the consequences Moses warned your fathers about will come to pass. Sometimes, some of the people, even a few of the kings, listened to the warnings and repented, and there was a little time of revival. But most of the time, people didn't like hearing that they were not doing what's right in the Lord's eyes. Most of the time, the life expectancy of a prophet in Israel was a little below average. That was the job that most prophets had, to come with a hard message and say, listen, if you don't listen to the warnings, it'll be too late. But Jeremiah... Jeremiah, because of the time he lived in, had the distinction of having a different message. His message was actually this. You have broken the covenant. Enough is enough. It's too late. The Lord has set his face against you now. The consequences are already on their way, and all you can do now is brace yourself. Jeremiah had to address the nation with an enemy at the gates, and he didn't get to tell them, thus says the Lord, I will hear your cries and save you. Jeremiah had to tell them, thus says the Lord, I'm with those guys. Those armies, I sent them. Jeremiah was considered a national traitor. He was hated. He was not believed. His life was heartbreaking. He loved his country and his people. His heart broke for them. The only message he had to preach to them was to tell them that exile was unavoidable and that somehow... God had future plans for them beyond this time of punishment. He told them the only thing a prophet of the Lord is capable of speaking, which is the hard truth, exactly what they needed to hear, and after doing that, he was reviled and hated and largely ignored. At this point in his life, when chapter 12 was written, Jeremiah had most likely been faithfully preaching this hard message for decades. If you look back at chapter 11... Verse 17 actually gives us a pretty good summary of the kinds of things Jeremiah was called to preach. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. That's the message. Your God, the one who oversees the protection of your land, the one who planted you here in the first place, the Lord has decreed disaster against you. You've broken the covenant, 
and you're not under his protection anymore. If we keep reading verses 18, 19, and 20, we get a glimpse into the way the people reacted to Jeremiah. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. The phrase, don't shoot the messenger, never seemed to apply in Israel. They were plotting to kill the man who was telling them the truth. And then starting in verse 21, we see God's response. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the man of Anathoth, who seek your life, and who say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. By the way, the fact that these men are from a place called Anathoth bears more significance than just giving pastors one more place name to badly pronounce in the Bible. Anathoth was Jeremiah's hometown. And the cherry on top of that is that this was a town belonging to the priesthood. So the people who are planning to kill Jeremiah are A, people he was going to run into at his 20-year high school reunion, awkward, and B, a town of priests whose primary job would have been to know what's in those covenants, those ones that Jeremiah is reminding the people that they have broken. More awkward. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, Jesus was rejected in his hometown by his own people who should have known better, and hey, he lived a life of hardship for telling people the truth from God that would have done them good. And the people Jesus came to save rejected him and wanted to kill him. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Then just hold on to that thought because it's probably going to do you some good in a little bit. But for now, let's listen to Jeremiah's words on his own terms and to the living, eternal, inspired, and useful word of the Lord that comes to us in Jeremiah chapter 12. Now that we know the personal background and what Jeremiah is speaking out of, let's consider the complaint that he brings to the Lord in verses 1 to 4. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You're near in their mouth, yet far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. If you recall, the Lord already made a promise to Jeremiah back in chapter 11 that he would deal with those ones who were treacherously plotting to do him harm. At the end of chapter 11, the Lord said, I will punish them. They will die by the sword. I will bring disaster upon them the year of their punishment. Now, the year of their punishment is one of God's ways of saying, in my own perfect time, when the time is right. So Jeremiah already has a promise from the mouth of God that justice will be done someday. But Jeremiah wonders, why wait? Why do the wicked prosper in the short term? Do you ever wonder that? 
Many of God's people did in the Old Testament. It was, it was a common question then. It's still a question that needs to be answered now. Have you ever been bothered by the stuff you see in the world that just seems to go on and on? Come on, Lord. These people who are in power give you lip service at best, and because of them, everything else suffers. The earth and the animals and the plants, widows and orphans and children and poor and your people all suffer because of the evil in this world. Lord, why don't you just take them out? Take them down. Verse 3, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. That's the plan they had for Jeremiah, right? To lead him like a lamb to the slaughter. Why don't you turn it around and do it to the evil people? What good can possibly come from letting the darkness rule this world any longer? Wouldn't it be better if God would just, like, take out the trash? That's the nature of Jeremiah's question. He begins right away by making it very clear that he is not questioning God's character. Verse 1, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Even so, I would speak up and bring this to you. I know you are righteous, God. I know in your sight the innocent is innocent and the guilty is guilty, but I don't get this. I look around and I just don't get it. I came across an old outline of a lesson based on these four verses, and it gives some really good advice on taking Jeremiah's attitude here and, and applying it in a way that we can, we can take some constructive steps when we wrestle with this same kind of thing. So I'm going to give you the short form of the bullet points Um, on how to respond like Jeremiah here. First, face the difficulty. Acknowledge that you're bothered deep down by the evil that you see. Doubt festered when it's pushed down and away from the light, but call it what it is. Say it out loud. Face the trouble. Admit that you're troubled by what's in this world and that you don't maybe have a prepackaged answer for it. First, face the difficulty. Second, Do not charge God foolishly. Don't bring a charge against God. Note again how Jeremiah began so carefully by reminding both God and himself that God was righteous. We cannot see the end from the beginning and everything in between. John Calvin warns against the dangers of letting our passions carry us away so that we abandon what we know is true about God, and then we end up starting to search for answers from the wrong starting point, all the wrong places. And it's easy to do that. Every time we hear about something new going on, and I don't know about you, but there's no shortage about things that trouble me in this world that I hear about. Every time you hear about it, it's hard to not immediately, emotionally, just start reacting the way everyone else around you is reacting. Then we lose the perspective that we have. We need to start with what we know is true about God first. The truth is, most of the time, God will not give us an explanation of his actions. I can't think of a single time in Scripture, out of all the times, I could be wrong, but of all the times when someone brings something to him where what he gave them was a clear explanation, where he justified his ways. Usually what we get is a better understanding of who God is, the one who is worthy of our trust. And I'm pretty sure that since that's what God gives us, that's what's better for us in the long run. But just because God isn't necessarily going to give you an answer doesn't mean that he isn't pleased when his children come and ask. And that brings us to number three. So first, face the difficulty. Don't ignore it. Second, remember who God is. And third, bring the difficulty to God 
Doubt should drive us to prayer. We may not need or get an explanation, but in the end, only a closer walk with God can give us peace. God graciously permits and encourages his children to come to him. That's good advice from the way the Lord's prophet Jeremiah handled himself in this situation. But it's when we look at the next two verses, it's when we look at the specific answer that God gave Jeremiah this time, that's when things get really interesting this morning. Look at the answer Jeremiah receives in verse 6. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They're in full cry after you. Don't believe them, even though they speak friendly words to you. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how are you going to run with horses? Think of everything Jeremiah has been through so far. It's not a small amount of trouble. Decades of faithfully preaching a hard message to an unresponsive people. A plot to take him out, originating in his own hometown. And now God says to Jeremiah, Oh, Jeremiah, if you think things have been hard so far, we're just getting started. Imagine that Jeremiah has been called down to the racetrack by God. And God's going to put him through some races to train him. You've got a whole team of uh, trained athletes in peak physical condition, you know, wearing aerodynamic spandex and those athletic shoes with toes. And then you've got Jeremiah, who I picture the same way I picture all the prophets, big flock of seagulls hairdo, uh, untrimmed beard, wearing this rough homespun robe held together by twine and wearing what can only be on very generous terms defined as sandals on his feet. And Jeremiah begins to race. First the 100 meters. Then with all new fresh opponents, the 400 then a 2K, then a marathon. And Jeremiah does his best. He doesn't complain. He's walking around trying to play it cool in front of the athletes, pretending that he can still inhale. And then God says, oh, time for the 60-yard dash, Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, is that still a thing? God says, today it is. Go. And he runs. And just when Jeremiah reaches his limits, and he's certain he cannot take one more step, God says, it's time for something new now. It's time to line up for the derby. Take your place between positions three and five and run against the horses. If you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete against horses? You have had it hard so far, Jeremiah. You have. But it's even worse than you think. Even your family, even your brothers and your father and the few people thought that you thought you could still trust, even they have betrayed you. As hard as things appear, they're only going to get worse. I am going to ask incredible things of you, Jeremiah. Impossible things. Are you going to give up now? Or are you going to run with the horses? And when it comes to making sense of this, the first thing we're forced to conclude is that hard is not always bad. It can't be if God is good. Hard is not always bad. In the same way that temporary prosperity is not always good for us. It's actually been said, and I think this probably works out, that for every 100 people who can handle adversity, there is one person 
who can actually handle prosperity. So in the same way that prosperity is not always good, adversity is not always bad. Charles Spurgeon said, I dare say that the greatest blessing God can give to any of us in this life is health, with the exception of sickness. What's strange in the modern church is that we seem to, deep down, we intuitively grasp this idea that hard things are worthwhile in all sorts of other areas of life. We just miss it in our spiritual lives. You know the bodybuilder's motto, no pain, no gain? Seems kind of really macho, almost to the point of being masochistic until you think about it and realize, oh, that's actually true. That's how it works, right? Like weightlifting actually creates little tears in your muscle and your body rebuilds that and makes it stronger and that's how your muscles grow and get stronger. It's actually true. So we understand that hard isn't necessarily bad in lots of ways. There's something human about the way we recognize and celebrate stories that show us that sometimes the hard-won battles are the ones that are truly worthwhile. I recognize this personally when I read a book about the history of World War II or when I watch a decent sports movie. Remember Rudy? Classic. True story of a guy who loves football, but he's just short and not good at football. But he refuses to give up. Even when he's told over and over again he'll never set foot on the field of a college football team, he settles for the role of live tackle dummy at practices just to feel like he's a part of the team. And then get your Kleenexes ready, guys. On the last game of the senior year, his teammates vouch for him, and he gets to suit up, and he even gets to play in the last scrimmage of the game. Or Gina Davis's character in that movie, A League of Their Own. She leads her baseball team to the playoffs and then decides she's going to leave before the final game. And her coach, played by Tom Hanks, doesn't get it. He asks her why, and she says, it just got too hard. And his response? It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Goosebumps. Right? We, we react to those kind of things because we understand on some level that we were created for something significant. And even though sin has made a mess of this world, and yeah, many things that are worthwhile are hard now, hard to the point of pain, that doesn't erase our purpose. It doesn't take away the worth of pursuing what is good and right and excellent. And we get that. We're inspired by that. But here's the thing. Football isn't really that important. (laughs) Baseball isn't that important. Yet somehow, we're able to recognize that hard is not always bad in those areas. That sacrifice is admirable even when it costs deeply. We recognize that in all sorts of areas of life, in education, in work, even in our hobbies. But we assume that our spiritual lives should somehow be an exception. That following Jesus, the one who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, that that should somehow be easy. Or painless. Or at the very least, it should be convenient to my weekly schedule. Hard is not always bad. There have been times when the cost of following Jesus has been dangerously low in the modern church. And I believe there is a time coming, and maybe even getting here, when that cost will rise sharply again in our country. And I don't believe that's all a bad thing. To leave things there, though, would be to have a message that basically doesn't go any further than no pain, no gain. That heart isn't always bad. But that's not where God's word leaves us. 
And God's response to Jeremiah's problem continues in verse 7, where God reveals to Jeremiah that the hard and the necessary thing is also the thing that God himself is willing to do. We'll pick up at verse 7 again. I, says the Lord, have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, and bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They've trampled down my portion. They've made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come, for the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to another. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. God cannot simply do what seems best from Jeremiah's perspective to clean house and rip out the ones who seem to be doing the most harm because the problem goes deeper than just the surface harm. The problem goes much deeper, in fact, right down to the human heart. The real problem is sin and idolatry. The real solution is going to be larger and harder than just dealing with the worst symptoms. The solution must actually restore the people to a right heart relationship with their God. And the real solution is far more costly to God himself than Jeremiah's solution would have been. I believe that after telling Jeremiah it's necessary for things to get harder for the human prophet, God graciously gives Jeremiah a glimpse of his own determination to do even the harder thing when it's worth it. God is going to forsake his house, his heritage, the people whom he loves, because it is the way, in the long run, to bring his people back to him. You know that moment when your parent is disciplining you? Maybe a privilege is being taken away, a toy is being put on the shelf, or a a loving but firm hand of discipline is about to meet and descend upon your backside. And you hear those words, This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Those words are usually true, right? Usually. Uh, Not always, but, but the idea is there. But when God is the parent, those words are always true. God is always doing what is best for his people, even when, as was the case in Jeremiah's day, he was going to have to take his protection away from them. God calls them his heritage, his house, his be- the beloved of his soul, but they've turned on him like a lion. They become his enemy and raise their voices against them. They're determined and stubborn in their rebellion and their idolatry, and it's reached a point where something has to be done. And the warnings that were there in the law all along, that God would forsake his people for a time, God is going to make good on them. And as a result, Judah will suffer. The nations surrounding her are going to move in and kick her when she's down and defenseless. In verse 9, God says, Go, assemble the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. 
It's open season. I'm not protecting them anymore. In verse 10, we should put sarcastic quotes around that word shepherds. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. Those would really be the ruthless generals of the foreign armies who are coming in and treating the land like it's worthless to them. They're doing the exact opposite of what God, Israel's shepherd, would like to do for his people. But God has to hand the reins over to them for a time. In verse 11, the words desolate and desolation gets used three times. That is not a good sign. What happens to Jerusalem during the Babylonian invasion is horrific. But the most depressing part comes at the end of the verse, no man lays it to heart. No one even understands why this is happening to them. Verses 12 and 13 drive home the sobering truth that it is God himself who is behind this punishment. The one who would normally be called on for help is temporarily sending the enemy army in. Human efforts will not be enough to get them out of this. They've sown wheat but reaped thorns. They've tired themselves out but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests. Why? Because of the fierce anger of the Lord. And what will be the final result of God's hard plan? Before we read these last hope-filled verses, we need to remember that when Jeremiah was called as a prophet, he was called uniquely, not only as a prophet to Judah, but also as a prophet to all the nations. God would prophesy to the nations as well. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10 says, See, I have put my words into your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah would speak with authority to the nations as well as to Judah. And the words the Lord would speak through Jeremiah would be, first, to break down and destroy. But then after that, to give hope to build and to plant something new. So with that in mind, let's read the final part of the chapter. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. So God speaks, first of all, to Judah's neighbors, the ones who participated in her downfall, the one who taught her to worship idols, and then when God's protection was removed, the one who swooped in and took advantage of her. In many ways, they were the tool God used to discipline his people, but that did not mean he was not going to hold them accountable for their actions. At just the right time, God intervenes, and he brings about an impossible, almost unhoped-for reversal. He will do to the nations what they did to his people. He will pluck them up, Babylon isn't just going to hurt Judah. The Babylonian Empire is going to hurt all the nations in the whole area. They're going to be God's tool to bring all sorts of judgment and punishment on that whole area. But God is going to restore the fortunes, not only of Judah, but also of those other nations. 
And here's the really surprising part. For each of those who will be converted and begin to learn the ways of God's people and to trust him, they'll be built up in the midst of his people. That original broken situation looked like this. Israel, surrounded by these nations, being brought down by them. That situation gets replaced with a new picture where Israel is restored and all the other nations are now in the midst of Israel, if they want to be. God has reversed everything. And what God is going to accomplish through all the temporary suffering is something that Jeremiah could never have seen. He could never have looked past the temporary suffering and saw that greater solution. And at the end of the day, that glimpse of hope into the future must have been enough for Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah gave his answer to that question, how then will you compete with horses He gave his answer with the rest of his faithful life. Because Jeremiah's life did not get any easier from here on out. If anything, it only gets more heartbreaking. But his faith would remain firmly placed in the Lord that he could trust. The one that he could trust to take that suffering and do something beautiful with it. There's a prophecy that was made just a generation before Jeremiah came on the scene. It's found in Isaiah 53. Very familiar passage and it says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jeremiah lived and suffered for those who wanted to kill him just decades after Isaiah made that prophecy. And there were many who would later wonder if Jeremiah was indeed the fulfillment of that prophecy. We've already read earlier how Jeremiah described himself as a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. But there is a difference. There's a difference between a prophet like Jeremiah Even though he was used powerfully of God, he was, in the end, just a sinful man who needed salvation as much as any of us. There's a difference between Jeremiah, the sinner, and Jesus Christ, the Savior, who was to come. Jeremiah suffered, yes, but in a very human way, he cried out about his suffering. Read 12 verse 3 again. Jeremiah asks that God would take the ones who were trying to kill him and have them killed, that God would slaughter them instead. I don't know about you, but I can understand how he felt and why he said it. But even so, I'm thankful that Jesus was silent when he was accused. I'm thankful that when the perfectly innocent Jesus was being tried in a mockery of justice, he kept his mouth closed and said not a word. I'm thankful that when Jesus hung on the cross for the sins of the world... Sins of mine and yours, but not his own. That Jesus did not cry out to God to punish those who were truly guilty. Instead, hanging there, he opened his mouth to pray, 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I'm thankful that the righteousness of God produces a better result than the justice of men. In Luke 14, Jesus told a huge crowd that was interested in following them. He turned around and he said this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you are a Christian and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross to save you from your sins, you have already made that deal with Jesus. All that you have, his. The reality for most of us is that Jesus accepts a down payment up front. But in the end, he will require and receive all that you have. The upfront cost of following Jesus in North America is going to be on the rise. That's the bad news. But the good news is twofold. First, it's good news that the reward has not gone down in value. The words of Paul in Romans 8.18 are still true. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The value of following Jesus has not decreased at all, even if the cost on our end goes up. And the second part of the good news is this. Hard doesn't always mean bad. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Suffering for the sake of heaven while on earth prepares you for when you're going to make the change. Think back to Jeremiah 12 just one more time with me, and I want us to ask the question, who was this originally written to benefit? Who was originally going to receive these words and hear them and read them and benefit from them? Well, when the hard times came in Judah and God's people were hauled off into exile, there would have been in the midst of that nation a faithful remnant who went along for the ride and who suffered. Some of those people would have read Jeremiah's words and they would have remembered the way this man's life backed up his words. And they would come to recognize in the suffering and in the, in the, in the rejected personality of Jeremiah, they were actually being a glimpse, being, they were being given a glimpse of the character of God himself. And they would take to heart the word of the Lord that Jeremiah brought. And they would see it fulfilled. Today, we need more than ever Christians who will be willing to run with the horses who will be willing to bear the bad with the good and to be willing to keep at it when the cost goes up. We don't always get an explanation of why the righteous suffer, but in Christ we get a promise that the suffering of the righteous will never be in vain. It's only when you consider the exceeding value of Christ crucified and risen in the life to come that we can fully embrace the cost of the cross in this present life. Today, what's needed more than ever are disciples of Jesus who will love the world around them enough to tell them the truth about sin and salvation, even when it costs them. What's needed are people who, like Jeremiah and, 
to a greater extent, like Jesus, will gain a hearing for the word of God through lives that are faithful pictures of the words God spoke. This will not be an easy thing to do in the days to come. No man or woman is fit to run with the horses on his or her own strength. The only way someone can survive the ordeal of faith is by spending time in the presence of the Lord himself. In order to run like Jeremiah did, we must know, deeply, personally know the God who Jeremiah knew. This is the part of the message where we need something practical to leave off on. Right? How do I respond to this tonight and tomorrow and next week? And the true answer here is get down on your knees in the presence of a holy God. I want something else to do. I know I should pray. I know I should pray. What should I do next? Don't do other things if you're not on your knees in the presence of God. Prayer is intensely practical. Prayer is how we align our hearts to see things from God's perspective and to survive in this world. Every other thing a Christian might do and should do and must do can't be done until first we spend time in the presence of the Lord. Do what Jeremiah did. Don't shy away from the troubles and the fears, but look them full in the face and bring them to God himself. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have access to God the Father himself. Don't, don't make light of that. Don't forget you have that. Come into God's presence. Jeremiah was able to say, Righteous are you, O Lord. He knew that from experience. He was able to say, You, Lord, know me, and you know my heart. Jeremiah didn't run with the horses in human strength. He did the hard thing because he spent time in the presence of the God who gives strength to the weary and who lifts up the faint. The cost is going to go up. The strange thing about that is when the cost goes up, some of us will finally snap out of our daydreams and start to realize the true value of what we've had in Christ all along. In some countries of the world, the cost of attending prayer meeting is risk of imprisonment or death. In Canada, the cost of prayer meeting is one hour of me time. It's not a coincidence that prayer meetings in places where persecution is real are better attended. And I'm not saying for a moment that the only way to measure spiritual strength is if you go to prayer meeting or not. What I'm saying is that you need to be on your knees in the presence of the Lord. People need to see Christians who see the Lord. Do you pray? Do you take things, the things that break you, do you take time to be broken by them and then to go to the Lord and let him put you back together? If you want to be ready when the cost goes up, then fix your eyes now on the value and the worth of knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because no matter what the cost is to us personally, the value of what we have in Jesus Christ is eternal and infinite, and it will never, ever change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can always come to you like your servant Jeremiah did and bring our problems to you. Lord, prevent us from ever seeing the brokenness in the world and just getting used to it. Let our hearts be broken when we see the effects of sin and death 
and sickness and evil in this world. And when we see those things in us, bring us to a place of repentance, to a place of brokenness where we come to you because we know the answers are only found in your presence. Thank you for the blood of Christ that is able to cleanse us from all sin, that is able to bring us back into a right relationship with you. Holy Spirit, apply the blood of Christ to our conscience and to our hearts again and again. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day so that we know the incredible gift, the incredible, insurmountable gift we have been given in Christ Jesus. Let us be found in him. Let us be to the world reflections of your truth and your love as they were given to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we ask this. Amen. Well, just, that, just like that last song we sang, let's, let's go from here and live lives that speak Christ is enough for me. God bless.